The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to today's episode of Getting In. My name is Ian Fisher and I'm in as host today for Beth Heaton. A lot has happened in my life since the last time I occupied the hosting chair from down in sunny Palo Alto, California. My family and I moved up to Portland, Oregon, home of my alma mater, Reed College, and frankly, uh, my favorite city on earth. And so the radio show will be a little greener and a little cloudier whenever I'm hosting from behind the mic. I'm glad to have you here with us. On our show today, we hope to begin a conversation on college access for low-income high school students. Through discussions with each of our three guests today, we'll shed some light on financial aid uh, and experiential opportunities for low-income students all over the country who have set their sights on college and are looking forward to seizing educational opportunity for future success. We'll be tackling college finance a little more explicitly in the third segment of our show. But we want to use the bulk of our conversation time today to discuss community-based organizations, or CBOs, and the impact they can make on aspiring college students from underrepresented backgrounds. To introduce our listeners to CBOs, I'd like to welcome Kara Courtois back to the show. Uh, welcome, Kara. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Kara is uh, my colleague here at College Coach, and in her time at Barnard College, she worked as the admissions liaison to the Higher Education Opportunity Program. Um, Now, Kara, as we were talking about this show today, you wrote to me that working as liaison to the Higher Education Opportunity Program was your, quote, absolute favorite part of your job back at Barnard. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about why uh, that was such a great part of your work? Absolutely. I, I'm, that's a great way to approach it. I think the reality is that it was a really special opportunity to get into some of the high schools where they don't always have colleges visiting um, that are as selective as Barnard. So um, Barnard at the time when I was there accepted usually around 24, 25% acceptance rate. So students had, you know, very high test scores oftentimes and usually like an A minus grade point average. Um, and so some of the, I would often go in, get to go into a lot of the New York City public schools where they had never seen a Barnard representative or anybody that normally would be considered the peer institutions um, of the highly selective colleges. And the guidance counselors were really excited by that. You know, so you sort of, saw them, you know, start to change uh, their awareness, oftentimes from, because we were based in New York City, 
they, uh, the focus would oftentimes be gearing many of the students towards the CUNY or the SUNY, so the state university or the city universities, um, because of price range oftentimes. And if it was, if there were some private colleges that were represented, um, it just wasn't that common and frequent, and students would often be so intimidated that they may not end up applying. So I loved, you know, going in and, and talking to students. And then when I specifically was able to talk about the higher ed opportunity program, um, I was able, you know, to just enlighten them, the students to the fact that there are many colleges like Barnard. So to just broaden their awareness one more time of, you know, you maybe don't want to stay in New York City. But if your guidance counselor brought you to meet with me because you are a really strong student and you're probably the top at your school. <clears throat> and, you know, there's so many schools beyond what you might you know, be thinking at the moment. Um, so it's just that opportunity alone to just broaden their awareness was just so exciting and gratifying. And I also yeah. had taken having every year that I was with the program longer, I would get to see the financial aid packages for these students when they were about to be sent out. Um, not because I was part of that process at all, but completely separate. But when we would ship the acceptance letters, I saw these absolutely stunning financial aid packages that were 100% need-based and you know, were able to make the dreams a reality for um, the 24 students we had <clears throat> at Barnard and then knowing that that was happening at many other private schools. Yeah, that's uh, that. I think is just totally in alignment with an experience that I had when I was working for Reed, and I, I went down to a college fair in Phoenix, and, and really the only reason I was there is because I had family from Phoenix, um, mm-hmm. and I went to the fair and was talking to students and. Um, I kept talking to them about the liberal arts. I was the only liberal arts college there. You know, we went there to mm-hmm. recruit Reed students, but you start to recognize as an educator that there's an information gap um, and everybody's looking at Arizona State and U of A and NAU, but that's really the extent of where their horizon is, you know, just in terms of knowledge. Um, and so one of the directors of the fair was like, could you just get up and give some remarks about the liberal arts for, for our crowd of students? <laughs> it was sort of like... Well, yeah, I would love to because there are so many opportunities. And because, as you point out, you know, if you come from a, a, a low-income background, you're often looking at uh, some pretty good financial aid packages, even at these schools that have a very high sticker price. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are organizations out there that, that help to fill this knowledge gap in ways that, you know, sometimes admissions offices might miss. Um, and, you know, there are community-based organizations, I think, that are involved in that kind of a process, the CBOs, right? So can you help to just sort of define a little bit about what a CBO is and um, how they sort of serve the community in which they're situated? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Basically, I mean, they, they typically crop up to try and fill a community need. So it's, um, and the ones where we visited certainly were educationally based. And the founders usually have a goal or mission in mind to uh, further educate a certain group. So the ones that we're referring to today, you know, exist specifically uh, to help high school students prepare for college, usually doing oftentimes test prep and career planning and academic planning and basically giving many times a private high school experience 
but Mm -hmm. outside of their high school experience. So many of them, you know, exist and they're open from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. and sometimes till 10 p.m. because they try to serve uh, and be a place for students to go to after high school to be a safe place, to be a place where they feel welcome and, you know, um, and just be an opportunity to broaden their awareness and, and skills and all of that. So I think that's generally in a nutshell. I don't know if you think I missed anything in there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really useful. I think you can kind of see that CBOs, they share a lot of things in common, sort of in terms of how they try to support students and the hours they might keep. And, you know, they, they pop up in, in certain parts of, of a city that has a need. But you also recognize that there are very different flavors to CBOs according to, you know, possibly the interests of the founder. And we'll learn a little bit more about one in the next segment. Um, how do these CBOs overlap with college admissions explicitly? I mean, is there... There is some way in which there's advising that's happening around the college process. Um, what kind of connections are there between admissions offices and community-based organizations? And are they official? Are they more informal? What, what do they kind of look like? Yeah. Um, well, that was another part that I actually loved um, in my role in admissions is that since I was looking for, you know, trying to fill these HEOP positions we had at Barnard and it's seemed ironic in many ways, you know, at one of the highly selective schools that you still had to look for students because there are very specific guidelines in order to gain the funding for these scholarships that you had to be very high achieving and very low income. And it is, you know, it was very, it was extremely tough to find 24 students a year who could fit both of those criteria. Mm-hmm. And want to go to Barnard or whatever, you know, other institutions were looking at them. Um, so, you know, I, I would reach out. Oftentimes we would host breakfast or reach out to other area colleges to host joint breakfast and bring in the advisors who worked at these CBOs to educate hmm. them further about our program. And um, it wasn't just, it, part of it also was to help them feel comfortable that when they pass off their students, that they're passing them off to the right place, you know, that they're not, you know, selling a student on a school or encouraging them to apply to a college that they have no possibility of either getting into or surviving at because it's oftentimes a cultural shift or just, you know, such a major socioeconomic shift. Um, some of the students I worked with were applying, having living while they're living in a homeless shelter. So... Mm-hmm. You know, there's drastic um, measures, uh, drastic differences sometimes than the average student who will be applying there. Um, so they want, you know, we were basically networking. Um, I loved when I got the opportunity. I was thinking in preparation for this um, podcast today, I was thinking about one that I worked with regularly called The Door, which yeah. is in lower Manhattan. Um, a lot of people know it because it's just a very well-run community-based organization, and I would go in there usually twice a year. I'd be invited down there, and they would hand-select some students who were their more high-achieving students to meet with me, and they all had to be female, of course, because Barnard's a female, you know, all-women college. Right, of course. But we would, you know, talk through the process, and the door does everything um, to help those students get the best possible chance at a great college education. 
Yeah, I mean, that's phenomenal. There's a there's another organization out um, on the West Coast that I learned about because um, Dave Eggers is one of my favorite authors. He's written some really wonderful books, um, and he started an organization actually called 826 Valencia in San Francisco. And the initial focus of his organization was just to help students improve their writing skills, you know, creative and expository mm-hmm. writing, that's sort of the, the core of their mission. But as he started to get more funding and had more and more students from the local public high schools in in San Francisco were showing up at his doorway, he was starting to say, there's more that we need to do and can do to help these students to achieve college success. And so now there's a college and career readiness office. They're partnered with a program called Scholar Match, which really helps students to get additional funding to make up any gaps that they have between what they've been offered in terms of aid and the total cost of attendance. And it's it's just so interesting that you know, these sorts of CBOs, they pop up and, and they get support from the community and then they're able to support the community in a lot of, of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. you, had, you had mentioned, you know, CBO support in the college campus is sort of the handoff of students. Um, and one of the things about CBOs is that sometimes they work, you know, just with a student through high school. Um, but then the student goes off to college and, and still needs that same kind of support or help or maybe a different flavor of support and help. What do students get on a campus that maybe helps to replicate what a CBO might be able to provide within their hometown or home community? Oh, absolutely. Because I think that's the biggest um, fear sometimes coming from the students and you know the CBOs is are they just going to be just placed somewhere? And there's you know, quite a few better-known programs, such as the Posse um, Foundation or Oliver Scholars, yeah. that has a very strong tradition of providing support for students on their campus. And HOP functions quite similar, and then many colleges um, offer this, and it will just be termed, you know, something different on each individual campus. But, um, you know, for any student who is admitted they are through specifically HOP, they have an actual office on campus dedicated to any student in their four years at Barnard. And it was actually a mandatory part of the experience was, uh, you know, an opportunity for academic support. They were given laptops through that program. There were social workers as part of that program available to them at any time. Um, everything was completely hand done so that there was always someone there to support those students and their needs. Um, that, you know, a big part of it, again, is, was sometimes it was, uh, you know, students who came in, they were not hugely different academically than the students that um, are generally admitted uh, to Barnard as an example, but sure. they certainly didn't have tutors and they weren't used to all the, um, you know, extra work of maybe the five APs that some students might have come in and they might have taken three. And so coming into Barnard might still have been a challenge academically. And so they had extra support for writing services. And similar, to be honest, a lot of it is quite similar to what athletes get at Division One. you know. Um, programs where there's extra academic support and um, but oftentimes there's also um, cultural events 
that they do for the community building and just um, even choosing their roommates, you know, that they pay special attention um, to make sure the students are feeling, you know, comfortable. And then the students, as they get older each year, they become mentors to the new students coming in. And it's a wonderful, at Barnard, it was a sisterhood. It was a really amazing um, opportunity for community to be built in a very special way. Yeah, and you see a lot of this. I, I saw a lot of this just even formally at, at Reed as well because, look, colleges have a vested interest in making sure every student they admit who chooses to attend can graduate and graduate on time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they find ways to develop community within that campus and to provide mentors. We had a peer mentor program at Reed. We had um, a special group of faculty advisors who were available uh, to students to be able to talk to them if they were having trouble adjusting. So, you know, these kinds of programs exist on college campuses. And, you know, it's not the same as having the support of mom and dad, you know, in the next room, but it it really does help for students who are maybe a little more fearful about going away to college to, to be able to have a support network in place. Um, I want to ask you, you got a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you if I'm a student that's looking for a CBO that, that might be relevant to my interest, do I start with my community and location? Do I start with a particular interest that I, that I have? How do I go out into my neighborhood and find these kinds of opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I would say start with your guidance office at the high school. Cool. Um, and, you know, some students think they can't talk to their guidance counselor until senior year. And the reality is they'd love to see you earlier. And oftentimes, even if it's not your specific guidance counselor, if you go into the guidance office and make an appointment or even speak with whomever is, you know, the person at the front desk and say, you know what, I, you know, I really want to go to college. That's my goal. Um, or I just, I'm looking for something And if you can specifically say a community-based organization, I don't think students generally call them that, but, um, you know, I'm looking for something that will really help support me during high school and something I can get involved in. And they can usually say, you know, these these are some programs that, you know, we know of in our area, either because students from the high school who graduated have maybe moved on from there, or hopefully they have, you know, strong relationships. That's the first place that I would usually... Um, suggest to students. And then second to that would probably be, um, you know, just to do a quick search online um, for academic support, you know, in your area. Specifically, doing a search on community-based organizations is definitely one way you can find things. Great. And, you know, just one other thing you might reach out to is if you know of a school like Barnard and you live in New York City, even if you're not interested in attending Barnard, you might ask an admission officer there whether they have suggestions about CBOs, since these are things that, as Kara is illustrating, admissions officers get to know really, really, really well. Um, This is great. Kara, I always learn so much from my conversations with you, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to share this one with our listeners. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Folks, when we come back, we're going to take a trip out on the water together with the founder and executive director of a very special CBO called Row New York. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Before we get into our next segment, I want to offer my thanks to all of our listeners who've submitted questions for us to answer here on the show or filled out an iTunes review of our podcast over these last few weeks. Your continued engagement and interest is what drives the conversation, and it really helps us to develop ideas for new segments or bring terrific guests to the show. So thank you. Um, Our next guest is one of those terrific guests. Um, Amanda Krauss is the founder and executive director of Row New York, a program that I only just learned about this week that has made a tremendous impact on the city of New York and the country over the last 14 years. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very, very excited to have you. And, uh, you know, I would encourage all of our listeners to visit your website. It's rownewyork.org. You can see pictures. You can learn about the mission, uh, some of the success stories. But I also want to hear straight from you while we've got you on the line. Um, Can you tell me just sort of an overview of sort of what your goals are with Row New York and, um, you know, maybe a little bit about how you started the organization to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just backing up a little bit, I um, 
I went to Harvard Graduate School of Education, and while I was there um, for a master's degree, I started working part-time for a brand-new program up there called Girls Row Boston, and their mission was to bring competitive rowing to girls from underserved areas in Boston. And uh, while I was working there, I, I realized that there was just a big gap academically for the girls I was working with, so sort of on my own, I added you know, some tutoring sessions and a little help with SAT prep and um, very long story short, finished graduate school and then, um, you know, knew I wanted to come back to New York City. I'm from New York and um, decided that I would try to replicate the program in Boston in New York and and even try to make it bigger and, and the academic program more robust. And uh, that was in the summer of 2002. And so uh, here we are. And, and the goal is to use competitive rowing and academic support to help our young women, and we serve young men now, too, um, graduate from high school and successfully transition into college and and stay in college as well. So, yeah, I saw on your website that about 75% of your program participants are women, about 25% are men. which is which is just awesome. Uh, and rowing, I think you know, I've never been out on the water, but I'm in the erg, and it's uh, it's really great a sort of experience to have. Um, I'm wondering whether you had always thought you were going to be associated with a, a CBO or do something like this, and that rowing sort of came on the scene and became the way that you did it, or if if being a you know participant in the rowing program in Boston sort of is what set you on the path towards this particular organization. Um, I, I think it was more the former than the latter. I think I was always interested in working with, um, populations of young people who, who, um, sort of just because of uh, the luck of the draw, it ended up, um, uh, not, um, being born into families with, with tremendous resources and, you know, with a real lack of resources. Um, and that, you know, since I think I was a kid really struck me, um, and so I don't think I knew what that would look like as a grown-up when I was a kid, but, you know, I, I think I firmly believed in college that, you know, I had no interest in finance or law or anything that would uh, make too much money, but really wanted to somehow, um, you know, to, to give back, for lack of a better word or phrase, and um, really thought that the marriage of competitive rowing and academic support to help young women... Um, in terms of, you know, college and then all the success that comes after college and really was it was such a wonderful fit for me and really I saw the model work on a very on a small early scale um in Boston and knew, you know, it had a lot of potential and, and we're fourteen years in now and it certainly um it certainly does have a profound effect on, on our kids. Yeah, and you mentioned, I want to get a little bit to some of the other sort of supports that you provide in terms of tutoring and, and helping students get prepared for college. And there are a lot of CBOs that do that kind of thing, but not a lot of CBOs that uh, do rowing and, and bring, you know, this particular sport to students from, from low-income backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about the value of rowing itself um, in terms of helping students to find their identity, to gain confidence, to build sort of this team mentality. What, what is it about the sport that really helps this organization? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think I'm the first person to say, listen, it can happen with other sports too. I don't, I don't think it has to be rowing. Um, mm-hmm. I think rowing has a natural leg up um, for a number of reasons on other sports. I think, you know, it's often called the ultimate team sport, and it really is. Um, I don't know if you've rowed at all, um, but 
you know, it's not, it's sort of not as easy as it looks. I think when you see the, the Olympians going by or even the collegiate crews, they're really synchronized and they make it look much easier than it is. And yeah, I think people know that it's physically challenging. You know, they say, oh, it's such a hard sport and you have to be in really good shape, but um, it's technically harder than it looks too. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of time spent learning balance and technique and, you know, how do you get your oar in and out of the water and how do you not hit the person in front of you by mistake over and over again and balance the boat. And so from, from the very beginning, our kids need to learn um, patience and they need to learn teamwork and, and they have to learn sort of delaying gratification. You don't just jump in and have fun. Right. Um, there's a lot of sort of upfront work that goes in and trust in, in their coaches and in one another. And they really learn so many skills that, um, you know, having been a rower myself, I still personally apply to life that, you know, around, yes, this is hard right now, um, but this won't always be this hard, and, and you have to sort of have some faith and, and put the hard work in, and the results do come out the other the other end, and, and sometimes that takes a little bit of time, but it really does happen, and, you know, creating a sense of community where, um, you know, you really can rely on other people to, to carry you through and then you're carrying other people through. And I, I think it teaches so many good life lessons for sure. Yeah, I can definitely see parallels there um, as students come into a transition to college and are in a totally new environment and do have to rely on their peers, whether that's in study groups or, you know, their dormies or just going and talking to faculty members and asking for help and support along the way. I think that sort of setting up that sense of you're in this with a group um, can really be a good lesson for students to learn as they go forth. Um, let's talk about the transition from yeah. the water to the classroom. So, you know, you're, you're not always on the water, but you're also providing different kinds of support and activities for students. Um, what are some of the things that you do for, for students with Row, York, Row New York that are outside of the water? Yeah, so, you know, from the very beginning, we knew we didn't want to just be rowing because the rowing is great and it provides fitness and teamwork and fun and, um, you know, a sense of, of competitiveness, which is also great, I think, especially for the young women um, to be encouraged. But listen, at the end of the day, that's not going to, you know, bring your SAT scores up. It's, it's um, not going to give you concrete guidance for college. So we really put those pieces in place. We have a director of academics and college readiness, and she has a team of tutors and assistants working with her. And so what that looks like is um, small group tutoring. It's um, New York State Regents prep. It's um, SAT prep in the summer for the rising junior, I mean, rising seniors. Um, It's a lot of college readiness. So, you know, one thing we learned about six or seven years ago, is it's not enough to just... um, get our kids into college, and I'm sure you guys think about this stuff all the time, but, yeah. uh, you know, for so many first-generation college students, you can't just sort of pack their bags and say, ooh, look, we, we even helped you secure some money, and goodbye, and good luck. Um, yeah. There's Mission so much more. Yeah. yeah, and we used to think that, and we learned that that is actually, unfortunately, not the case. It's not that simple. Um, and then there's a lot we could do, and that we do do now, in terms of preparation for the you know, kind of a culture shock um, for so many of our kids being on campuses and being away from home, being maybe the first person in their family to go to college and, and what to expect and, and how to find support once they are there um, because it's, it's really, it's a lot more than a lot of people think about. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a tremendous culture shock to begin with. I mean, both my parents are college professors. And when I went away to college, mm-hmm. I experienced a huge culture shock. And so yeah, you know, for okay. students, to, yeah. if their parents haven't even gone to college or graduated right. from college, that's even bigger. Um, do right. you right. do you have like a team of alumni that have been through the Road New York program who continue to have connections with students that are coming up through it and maybe transitioning to college? What what are your mechanisms for providing continued support once they get to their college um, of choice? So we do a lot of things. I mean, everything from before they even go. Before they even go, we do a lot of you know we do a college boot camp and yeah. um, you know. So getting them in is, is a whole piece, right? But then once they're in, it's sort of how do we prepare them? We do the college boot camp, and we do um, um, we do sessions over the summer with our own graduates who are in college. They come back and talk to the kids who are on their you know way into freshman year of college and sort of what to expect straight from them, you know, because they can they can say it better than we can, right? Yeah. Um, and then we do we for a lot of our kids, we even um, partner with the Hewitt School in Manhattan, and there's a group of wonderful moms there who help outfit our kids' dorm rooms, so when they get to campus, they have everything they need, Um, and then we do care packages and cards and phone check-ins, and uh, especially in that that freshman year to let them know, like, hey, we're still here, and we're thinking of you and rooting for you, and... um, it's, it's a big, it's a big step for everyone. I mean, like you said yourself in your own experience, and then you add, um, you know, culture shock, and and you know, at least when you called your parents, they they knew exactly what you were experiencing. Exactly, right? so they exactly. Talk you down. Yeah, they can provide that kind of support and help, and that can be tough. I mean, even you sort of mentioning decorating the dorm room. I mean, that's something that you know, seems like obvious, but some students don't have money for that. I actually heard that um, Harvard started a program this year for low-income students to just provide them with a stipend to be able to decorate their dorm rooms, um, which is a great idea. And it's it's good that people are noticing that every little bit helps as students are making this transition. Um, Right, right. I, one of the best parts about organizations like yours is that there are great success stories that you can talk about and, you know, students that have achieved a lot after coming through your program. Um, and we love hearing about those kinds of programs. Do you have a, a story or two that you might be able to share uh, for our listeners to just kind of see the impact in a case um, that, that your, your organization has made? Um, you mean specific sort of students and their, their experience? Um, yeah, as much as you're able to share, it would be great, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I, so many students over the years sort of stand out to me and, and what they've done, and I'm so sort of moved by what they've accomplished. But I think what stands out for me is, um, you know, there was a student who, um, you know, was an incredibly smart young woman and got a full ride at a top women's college and you know I'll leave all names out here but she um, just like two months into we sent her off to school and you know we were so proud of her and we're in New York was so excited and and then about a month later I turned around and there she was in my office and in New York City and I said what are you doing here you know you should be on campus where we left you Um, and you know here was a young woman who we really thought uh, she was all sort of set to go there and it was just 
it was just too much. It was too much of a shift. There was a lot of sort of guilt and and being on a on a campus um, away from family with with so much. Right, three amazing meals a day and cookies yeah. and flowers everywhere. As she described yeah. it, and um, it's just too much. And you know, more to her credit than to Ronnie York's is that she. Um, took a little bit of time and then um, got a lot of support, too, from Ronnie York to say, okay, let's get you back there, and that wasn't easy. Um, and three years later, she's graduating with honors. So I think, you know, it's a testament to her own. Listen, she had the she had the skills and the intelligence, right? And she did all the hard work. We didn't do any of that, that hard work. It's just sort of we lent her a little bit of faith, um, which I think is sort of key in, in life, right, is to have people whether it's people or an organization sort of believing in us and in moments when we, we're lacking that belief in our own abilities. And so she's yeah. one example of, you know, of a success story in my mind. And she had the confidence to be able to come back and find you and, and ask for help, but she knew the way to your right. office, um, which is, right, which is right. huge. Um, and so how would a student go about seeking out a CBO? This is actually a question I finished with, with Kara. Um, but I want to ask you as well, you know, what what should students do to get in the door to have the kind of support um, that you're talking about here, whether it's with Row New York or or anywhere else? I mean, I would just I would look on their websites and talk to them and and pick up the phone and and you know people behind those websites and and ask them you know what do you offer and what are the expectations and or what are the costs and um, what kind of support do you offer and on the college front and that's a big reason that a lot of kids do join Row New York because they know. Listen, you know they want to go to college, and and they know that that's just, that's a big part of what we do. It's that yeah, it's I mean, it sounds amazing and and terrific. And again, if if you are a listener out there and you know of any students who might, um, you know, fit into this particular program, you can look at rownewyork.org. Um, and then Amanda, you know, I noticed that you get quite a, a good number of contributions every year. You get uh, different support. Uh, is there anywhere that people can go if they're interested in making contributions to Row New York uh, for the future? Yeah, absolutely. We are always looking for contributions and support. Um, and that's also on our website at rownewyork.org. There's a, there's a donate now button and we have a lot of fundraisers and events throughout the year because you know, 85% of our kids participate in Row New York for absolutely for free. The SAT prep, the rowing, the racing, the swim lessons, the hot dinners, wow. all of it for free. So all support is appreciated. That is, that's terrific. Um, thanks for your help and your support with the students that you work with throughout New York and, and for being on this show um, as well. I'm really glad to have had you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Have a good day. Um, Okay. You, you have a great day. So we're at the two-thirds mark of our show. We'll be coming back after the break with finance tips for low-income families with one of our terrific college coach experts. Grab yourself a quick cup of tea or coffee if you'd like and join us after the break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Uh, this has been a really great conversation so far today. I really enjoyed the first two segments. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to join us for it. Uh, now we're going to jump into a discussion of the numbers. Um, that's a huge part of going to college and um, for low-income students. I think crunching the numbers can be even more challenging. Uh, joining me today uh, is former financial aid officer from more institutions than I can name in the time we have to introduce her. Uh, welcome to the show, Tara Piantanita Kelly. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Um, so let's talk financial aid. I hear a lot of conversations, of course, around the cost of college these days. I think there's a fear that students from low-income families are being left behind. Uh, college gets more and more expensive, um, but aid can help. Um, can you start by telling us just some of the differences in college finance as it relates to low-income students? How might they approach this process a little bit differently um, from other students? Sure, absolutely. Well, the, the, the financial aid process isn't very different for low-income students than it is for mid-income or even high-income students. It's just the results that are actually uh, can be quite different. So uh, for each student that applies for financial aid at a college, the school is going to determine that student's demonstrated financial need. And all that is is just the, the total cost of the school 
minus that student's expected family contribution, or EFC. So Mm -hmm. low-income students tend to have much lower EFCs, and therefore they have higher demonstrated financial need. And depending on the school they pick, that can equal a lot more free money than for students who are either mid-income or high-income. Yeah, and I think Kara was actually talking about this in the first segment. She sort of said the packages that she saw for students that came through some of the CBOs she worked with were just amazing financial aid packages mm-hmm. because of that high need. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we might wonder, was well, that just true at Barnard or is that true at other places? Is there more financial aid available to low-income students across the board? How does that work? Yes, absolutely. There is uh, more financial aid available. Um, Many scholarships, either whether they're from the colleges themselves or from uh, outside sources, uh, have some kind of financial need as one of their criteria. So, um, you know, a student that shows demonstrated financial need will be eligible for a lot more scholarships than a student that does not have demonstrated financial need. And also, lots of state-sponsored college grant or scholarship programs have some kind of need component as well. So, lower-income students tend to qualify for those at a much higher rate than mid- and higher-income students as well. Um, But, you know, I I do want to point out that uh, there might be some different applications and different deadlines associated with both outside scholarships and state grant or scholarship programs. So, um, regardless of whether you're low-income, mid-income, high-income, do your research, uh, make sure that you check to see um, what the criteria is, what the application process is, so that, uh, you know, you're still in the running for, for those. Gotcha. So, um, you know, as we look at the process, it's somewhat similar. you got to pay attention to deadlines. It might be a good idea to get yourself a spreadsheet of some kind, pay attention to these things, what different stipulations might be. Um, what else would you say that a low-income family needs to know about applying to college? Um, well, there's a couple of things. First, and, and this is just my, my personal belief, having worked in you know, the college financial aid offices yeah. for the last almost 25 Go years. Go for it. Um, Go for it. <laughs> I, I, I do believe <laughs> that any student, um, regardless of their income, who wants to get a college degree and is committed to achieving that can get one. Um, right, right now, I'm currently working with uh, one of my son's friends, and this this poor kid, bless his heart, uh, he lost his parents, both of his parents, within the last three years. He's a junior. He just finished his junior year in high school. So he absolutely meets the definition of low income. Actually, he meets the definition of no income. But I, I told him that he can absolutely go to college after he graduates high school. And uh, I told him that I expect the federal Pell Grant, which is a need-based grant for lower-income students, so we're talking free money, um, mm-hmm. that between the federal Pell Grant and our state grant, uh, I believe that his tuition fees and books and supplies will be covered 100% at our local community college. And then when he transfers into a four-year school, his federal Pell Grant and his state grant and his uh, federal student loans will cover, if not all, almost all of his direct costs. But then I also told him that uh, he doesn't need to necessarily do the, the um, community college and state in, in state public school. Uh, he, can, he, he could actually qualify for a lot of need-based aid at even at expensive private schools because some of these expensive private schools have a lot of their own money to give students who show a demonstrated financial need. So. I'll give you an example. Uh, so let's say our in-state public school costs $25,000 a year, and we'll look at a private school that costs $60,000 a year. And so that's, normally, um, you know, a student... Yeah, that's, that's including and, and like that's, room and board, right? 
not and room not just, and board, not just, yep, yeah. and tu- you know tuition and fees and books and supplies and everything. Um, so you know uh, there are a lot of low-income students that wouldn't even consider applying to a sixty thousand dollars a year school. But let's say that student does the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and it comes back that their expected family contribution is let's say five thousand dollars. Okay. Then the school is at the public school is going to say, okay, we cost twenty five thousand dollars. This family can afford five thousand dollars, so the difference is twenty thousand dollars, and that is this kid's demonstrated financial need here at our public school. Okay. Um, at the private school, they're going to do the same thing. We cost sixty thousand dollars. This kid's expected family contribution is five thousand dollars. Therefore, he shows fifty five thousand dollar need at our school. Now, the public school is going to say, well. He shows a $20,000 need, but we don't have enough money to cover that. So maybe we're just going to give him a $2,000 need-based grant and we'll give him some work study and some federal student loans. At the private school, um, let's say this is one of the private schools that advertise that they meet 100% of every student's demonstrated financial need. So if they say, okay, this student has a $55,000 need, the private school is going to come up with $55,000 of need-based aid to offer that student. Now, it could be, that could include, you know, need-based federal grants like the Pell Grant. It could include uh, need-based state grants. It could include need-based student loans and need-based federal work study, but only up to certain federal limits. And then the rest of that is going to come from need-based grants from the school. So now, all of a sudden, it would be actually cheaper and more financially feasible for that low-income student to attend the expensive private school than it does the in-state public school. And that's something that when we talk to students about it, they're just sort of, you know, they shake their heads in disbelief, like that just can't work out that way. Um, And I worked at Reed College, which was committed to meeting 100% of demonstrated financial need. And we would see students with EFCs that were very, very low, two-digit, three-digit EFCs. And we committed to meeting 100% of those students' demonstrated need. And not only that, but our average loan indebtedness at Reed was lower than the average loan indebtedness at University of Oregon and Oregon State University. So higher cost of attendance, but not necessarily coming away with high loans um, or with you know paying more out of pocket for that education. It's kind of amazing that way. Um, yep, absolutely. How do you and, figure and out... So many which, of our students don't realize that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just really useful information. And I, I wish I could just shout it from the mountaintops at every single college fair <laughs> yeah. that students knew what this need-based aid was. And I, how does a student go ahead and find out if a school meets 100% of demonstrated need? That sort of is a magic phrase within college It really finance, is. Right? Um, it, it really is. How The easy way is just to open a search engine and type in you know, colleges that meet 100% of demonstrated financial need. <laughs> and, and then you'll see lists of, because colleges that do that, they, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. And they, they like to, they like to tell that, you know, we will meet 100% of your demonstrated financial need. And so colleges will, will advertise that. So you could do that. And then another thing that um, families can do and is that every college in the U.S. is required to have on their website something called a net price calculator. And so if you can go to, you know, ABC University and in their little search bar, type in net price calculator and it will bring you to ABC's net price calculator and it will ask the student a series of questions about income and assets and academics. And then it will generate an estimated financial aid award for that student. 
So it would say, you know, oh, based on this, you know, you qualify for the provost scholarship of, you know, $20,000 a year, or you qualify for, in, in my example, you know, a $50,000 need-based grant. Um, and you, students can do this at any and every college in the U.S. They're required to have one on their website. And do those net price calculators show which proportion of the money would be grant money versus loans versus work study? Is that calculation usually included there as well? It is, yes. Um, some schools, like uh, if you if you're in an in-state school, uh, or let's say you go to a community college uh, and you do their net price calculator, the chances are you're going to get, you know, you're eligible for this federal student loan, and that's it. Whereas if you go to say Reed and do theirs, they're going to say, okay, you're, you qualify for this amount of, you know, need-based grant, this amount of um, federal work study, this amount of, you know, student loans, etc. Now, a lot of what we're talking about here with 100% demonstrated financial need in the EFC, we're, we're not having any conversation about need-aware, need-blind. And I, I just want to sort of push that out into the center for a second because a lot of students look at need-blind versus need-aware and think that that is somehow connected to how much aid they might get. Um, right. Is there any connection between a need-blind or need-aware policy and an eventual financial aid award? No, there is not. That's an excellent question, and, and no. Um, the need aware and need blind is, is purely on the admissions side. Um, they, you know, that's, and, and you're the admissions guru. You can explain <laughs> it better than I can, but no, it's, it's much more of an admissions um, uh, entity than a financial aid one or a finance one. Yeah, so, and, and when a school says that they're need blind, you might get into that school, but they, if they're not also committed to meeting 100% of demonstrated financial need, which is what Tara is saying is really an important thing to look for, then their need blindness isn't necessarily helpful to you because you might be admitted, but they're not going to give you the kind of aid that you need to be able to attend. So instead of looking for schools that are need blind, you want to look for schools that meet 100% of demonstrated financial need, especially if you're a student that comes from a low-income background. Um, That's exactly right. Now, what else should a low-income family know about applying for financial aid? What, what are some stories about just sort of the mechanics of putting the application together? Um, well, it, it, there, it is a process, and um, there have been some studies that show that uh, a lot of low-income students essentially leave money on the table, if you want to call it that. Um, mm. the, the Dayton Business Journal did a study earlier this year just to see how many students were eligible re- to receive the federal Pell Grant, and that's the one for lower-income students. It's free money. Um, but these students didn't actually get their Pell Grants because they didn't complete the application process. So they found mm. that in Ohio alone, uh, students missed out on over $90 million, $90 million in one year wow. from the students in Ohio alone. So it is a process, and it starts with the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. It's a free application. You don't have to pay for it. And uh, believe it or not, it's not, it is not that difficult. Um, it, it's, lots of parents get, oh, my goodness, it's like doing my taxes. And, oh, it's not that bad. It's an online form, and there's a help function available for every single question. Um, nice. But if they do get stuck on a question, there's an 800 number that they can call and talk to an actual real-life person and ask the question. Um, and then they can always go to the financial aid office at their local college, even if they're not planning to attend there, and just ask their questions. They can help you, too. The, the financial aid administrators there. 
And then um, once they've completed the FAFSA, there are some more steps after that. You know, they, if the school, um, the schools, if they've been accepted to a school, then the school is going to send a financial aid award letter and the student will have to respond to that. And, um, so it's a process that, that needs to, uh, it, it starts with the FAFSA and it ends with the student getting their aid. And if the student misses any of those steps, they don't get the aid. So make sure to complete the process in order to get the aid. Hit those deadlines. Great. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, as always, for being such a terrific guest and sharing your expertise with us. Um, Look forward to the next time you're back. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank you for joining us this week. Two weeks from today, I'll be back in the hosting chair to kick off our Schools Out Application Workshop series. We're really excited to be able to help our listeners work through their college applications over the summer, and we're hard at work with ideas to bring our expert advice straight to your earbuds, or however it is you listen to the show. Next week, Beth Heaton will occupy the hosting chair to myth-bust the SAT and ACT with our friends at Arbor Bridge Test Prep, and we'll be fielding more of your questions about college finance. Until next time, enjoy the start of the summer, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.